Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, and this, this is SITREP. SITREP, your defence magazine from BFBS Radio. You're very welcome. Right, today, in the next 60 minutes, Karzai speaks, but does anyone believe he can deliver? Is he just the mayor of Kabul? Did anyone at NATO headquarters believe Gordon Brown about Afghanistan? Helicopter shortage or crew shortage, why Merlins make sexy headlines? And why the Chinese neutered Obama? Why hasn't Maureen heard of NATO? Maureen, why haven't you heard of NATO? Name me three, three friends of Israel. And here's one for you. Who is Bob Ainsworth? And Tony who? Does it matter? Right, well, in Kabul, President Hamid Karzai, as you've probably all heard, has made his acceptance speech the, at the uh, inauguration ceremony as President of Afghanistan. Well, given the circumstances of election, you can understand why one cynic in Whitehall this morning referred to it as a tongue-in-cheek rather than a gracious, my government will. He was obviously at the opening of Parliament here. Um, the BBC's Andrew North has been in and out of uh, Kabul for the past almost a decade, I suppose. Um, Andrew... What did he say that impressed you? Well, I don't think he had any great surprises. Uh, What we did here, again, was uh, his emphasising that he has got to do something about corruption, which I think really was simply acknowledging uh, (laughs) that's what the West wants to hear from him. Uh, And certainly when I was uh, last in Kabul, uh, talking to people there, there was almost a sense that already... uh, even before the inauguration, they were kind of Western diplomats were almost writing the speech for him. I mean, they, 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 this was this was really what they wanted to hear all about corruption. Perhaps the significant thing, though, as well, was he did also talk about uh, much more about the idea of Afghan security forces taking over um, from foreign forces, from the British, from the Americans, which again is something that Western leaders want to hear and something that I suspect we're likely to hear much more about uh, when President Obama uh, finally announces his decision on whether to um, send in thousands of extra American reinforcements. I wonder if there is a distance between the United States, United Kingdom, for example, demands of Karzai and the real politique of Afghanistan. Well, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, I, I think in some ways what's going on right now is a, is a sort of desperate attempt to try and um, paper over all the cracks after that, uh, you know, really pretty disastrous election uh, that, that, that led to President Karzai finally getting back into office, but after all the fraud. There's a, there's, there are many, many questions facing his, his government, um, whether he really is going to be serious about corruption. Yes, he's saying all the right things, but, but at the same time, it's really now about deeds, not words. Um, so right now, people are hoping that uh, uh, things can move on. But I think after the last eight years of really, um, at best, pretty patchy progress, there's a lot of scepticism as to whether things are really going to change. But I think also a sense from the, from the Americans, we're starting to get from the British as well, because there's been such a collapse in public support for the Afghan war um, that, that we're starting to look at kind of last chance uh, initiatives. We're, we're, we're getting to the end of, uh, of how long this can go on for. Do you know, I, I was down in Whitehall this morning and they were still reciting this idea that, you know, if we pulled out prematurely, um, then Taliban would take over. And I was thinking of something which I think I heard from you on the World Service about how the Af- uh, how Taliban control quite a lot of the provinces as shadow governors. Can you explain that a bit? 
That's right. I mean, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing situation, um, but uh, as uh, the Taliban insurgency has, has spread, um, it has become clear that in many parts of the country, and now it's thought, by some estimates, um, 20 in 20 out of 34 uh, of Afghanistan's provinces, uh, the Taliban have some kind of shadow government, um, a sh shadow local governors and others um, in those provinces. Now, they don't absolutely control all the territory, but throughout the Taliban insurgency that's, that's followed after after they were thrown out of power in Kabul eight years ago, what the, the, the Taliban tactic has been to simply, um, they, they come back in again as soon as NATO troops uh, move out. And, and even if all those extra reinforcements are sent in by President Obama that uh, General McChrystal has asked for, that's still not going to be enough to really hold the ground and to stop the Taliban coming back in. Um, and they have, in effect, uh, been able to make uh, to, to, to um, benefit from the vacuum, the lack of, uh, of government uh, authority um, in many parts of the country. I'm just wondering if, if uh, maybe in a couple of years' time, people will start talking about the realistic answer to Afghanistan is in fact a Karzai or whoever, um, and a Taliban government combined. Well. Um, <laughs> Talks uh, between the two sides have certainly been going on. Um, it, it's nothing new, the idea of, of, of some kind of um, uh, reconciliation process or something that, that could eventually lead to, to an end to this. Whether or not it can actually really work um, is another question because there is going to be a lot of opposition uh, among certain sections of, of the Afghan population to any uh, kind of accommodation with the Taliban. On the other hand, this is generally how conflicts like this end, uh, with uh, the, the the government uh, and the insurgents eventually coming to some kind of uh, some kind of some kind of bargain. Right. Um, a grand bargain is is most likely to be the way the way this finally um, comes to some kind of uh, solution. But Afghanistan is in such a poor state after the last. 30 years of war or so, that, you know, it could still, it, it, whatever happens, it's not going to be a happy result for, for the country. Andrew North, thank you very much indeed. Well, with me at this week's Sit Round Roundtable, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson from the Sunday Times, that paper's defence correspondent, Michael Smith, and from the Royal United Services Institute in Whitehall, the Director of Military Sciences, Michael Codner. Um, Julian, the military point of view has not much altered throughout all this politicking, has it? No, I think that what is important is the military point of view, and I was talking to people just back from that sort of brigade commander level only yesterday, is that they are quite clear, and they put it across to everyone they can who will listen, that defeating the Taliban or killing the Taliban is not the aim. People seem to think in a simplistic way defeating the Taliban is the aim. It's not. The aim is to try and get some kind of government, maybe not a wonderful diplomatic, uh, democratic government, some kind of government which is acceptable to the majority of the people in Afghanistan, uh, which will govern the country reasonably fairly, in quotation marks. Michael, Michael Codder, that hence everybody is sitting there saying, right, where do we go from here? And there's nothing anybody can really think about or, or think aloud about until President Obama comes up with the grand strategy. Yes, I mean, it, it 
Bev mentioned that uh, the McChrystal plan has the short fight and the long fight, and the short flight is still all to do with um, overwhelming the Taliban opposition uh, with a view to then moving on and focusing much more on the population, on security, etc. But uh, at the end of the day, the big decision to be taken is uh, what Obama chooses to do out of the four options, as we now understand, that's, um, that's been presented to him. Mick Smith is uh, one thing everybody's talking about and say, well, you know, can Obama, uh, sorry, can uh, President Karzai deliver on all these promises, including him saying today, well, you know, nobody wants every, uh, foreign forces to be here forever. If he can't deliver, what's plan B? Well, the, it's very difficult to see what the plan B is for um, the car, for the presidency of Afghanistan because the whole point of Karzai was he was this front man who gave the impression that um, Afghanistan might one day be a democratic state. You know, he had this this um, aura about him. You know, he stood there in his Japan, didn't say much, and people thought, oh gosh, this guy seems to know what he's talking about and doing. Um, now all he is, of course, is a front man for corruption, his brother in particular. And um, that's rather destroyed the myth that was there if it was, if it was ever um, of any value whatsoever. But I think, um, as Michael says, that um, what we have to focus on is, is the, the situation on the ground. Um, I'm much, much more optimistic about that because it's not just... Um, McChrystal, it's Petraeus behind the scenes and Graham Lamb there on the ground in Afghanistan. He's there for a reason. He was there in Iraq, of course, with the surge. He was the British presence. We always think of ourselves as having messed up in Iraq, but actually Graham Lamb was pretty impressive behind the scenes in negotiating with the Sunni sheikhs in that surge, which combined with the surge allowed a solution in Iraq, and that's clearly what they think they can do in Afghanistan. Gillian, it, it, that's important to re- emphasise that, isn't it? No, I mean, not just as a, a bit of PR, but it's to explain to people, it's, there's quite a lot of rubbishing, saying, oh, well, you know, the British can't do anything about it, let's get out. Um, that's not the business. It's not the business. It? It's certainly not how people on the ground see it, uh, people that I've been talking to, uh, and they're much more upbeat about the whole situation. They're not saying it's going to be a pushover, but they're much more upbeat. But what is important is to, to find out or discover what's going to happen when Obama makes up his mind. And I think, actually, one of the key things will be, even whatever way he makes up his mind, is going to be where we are when the midterm elections come along in, in America. That's this time next year? Yeah. Right. Michael Cotton, just a final point on this. Um, uh, I listened to, as everybody did, uh, Gordon Brown on Monday at the Mansion House and saying, well, you know, we hope to start pulling out of there. There was something, well, how are you going to do it about it? And then the next day we heard from the NATO Secretary General that this isn't a war you just pull out from. It's almost as if, sadly, people at NATO say, no, we're not quite sure we believe the British Prime Minister. Well, there is a problem anyhow in presenting timelines uh, in situations of insurgency because the insurgents work to a different sort of strategy where the timelines are um, what they will be looking for in order to um, develop their their own um, move towards the ends. Uh, He did say this is not an exit strategy, but if it's a demonstration of a plan which has 
elements of progress towards something, that's one thing. But if it's really, this is our way out, then that's not the right message to send to the enemy. And traditionally, um, prime ministers, defence secretaries, whoever they are, and foreign secretaries have said, no, 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 we don't do dates because that just leaves the enemy sitting there just waiting for it to happen. I was thinking uh, also um, up in Edinburgh this week, the NATO parliamentary meeting. Um, European members of NATO are asking rather pertinent questions, questions we don't often hear, Michael, such as, um, you know, we deliver a load of NATO equipment to the Afghan National Army. What happens to it? Um, Those sort of things that really do get up the frocks of a lot of uh, European NATO countries who have to justify their actions far more than, say, the United Kingdom and the United States has to. Well, increasingly, the United Kingdom government needs to justify its actions, but I mean, certainly what the consequences are, and you could say the same thing over over um, uh, over um, international development uh, support, um, where does the money actually go when it gets mm. into the country? Mm. And this is part of what you were talking about, Mix, with about the, the, the in, inherent, I suppose, corruption. Yes, um, well, quite apart from anything else, we're paying, because it's our... You know, our belief that you, in order to, to get a country up and working, you've got to involve the Afghan people at every level. We're paying Afghans to work out who gets the money. And, of course, a lot of it is going into people's back pockets. And that's a big problem. And the other problem, which Michael alluded to there, is DFID. They pay an awful lot of money into Afghanistan. Not very much of it actually goes to Helmand, where it might actually help British troops. Where does it go, do we know? It's it, it spread evenly in a very peaceful who, way. Who actually, the who actually sort of administers it? I don't know who, who administers it, I'm afraid. It would be within DFID. And also, that's the difficulty, isn't it, uh, Julian? The military expected to come up with the answers. Yes. Uh, everyone knows that the money is sticking to, to, to hands or pockets, uh, and there's very little the military can do about it other than, than protest. I tell you, there's another side of this, Nick uh, Smith, which uh, is a bit mischievous, I suppose. If I want to know, um, I mean, listening again to the people in Edinburgh at the NATO meeting, and I thought to myself, I wonder if anybody knows this is going on, and does anybody know anything about NATO or whatever? So I rang Maureen. Now, <laughs> well, you know about Maureen, don't you? If you want to know a telephone number uh, in the United Kingdom, and forget all this 118, 118 stuff, you ring Maureen, and she's got, she is absolutely wizard, never fails. I said, I like the NATO number in, in London, please. And she said, how do you spell NATO? So I went through it, North Atlantic Regionalization, etc., and the acronym. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Why don't we sell NATO? It's it's a fundamental PR exercise. If you were running it, you'd have an office here. You'd have a. a I mean, if Tony Blair doesn't get the uh, high representative job in or president of the European Council, perhaps he could do it. I don't know. Well, it's. Um, it, I, I got lots of press releases from the the NATO MPs meeting in Edinburgh. Um, I can understand their concerns about where the money goes, obviously. Um, and the Germans, we, we moan about the Germans not putting enough troops in, but they put an awful lot of money in. They put some more in. They've said they're going to keep their, yeah, their guys yeah. there. Yeah. Um, but uh, NATO is it really, I mean, 1990, 91, it's sort of raison d'etre, sort of disappeared. And then we started finding reasons for it in, 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 the, in the Balkans, gradually, really. But, but Michael Cotton, doesn't that... Doesn't that I mean, really sort of 
it's quite depressing, isn't it? I mean, the NATO is the centre the, of, the, of the alliance sort of military sort of thinking. But you ring up Maureen. I mean, Maureen's nice. And she says, I'm sorry, the computer says no. This is, this is quite a, a, a British sort of thing. I, I was in uh, Bosnia two weeks ago um, uh, on a workshop on their own defence policy. I mean, Eastern Europe, of course, NATO is extremely important and not for reasons of Afghanistan, which is very much a matter of we send people there because it's part of our bargain with the United States. It's because um, NATO and territorial defence and security is still or you could say increasingly big issues for the East Europeans. Yeah. Which ends up, Julian, with us all doing things individually rather than the alliance having a, an international as well as a national, especially a national sort of uh, persona. Well, the, the real problem is that in the old days, I'm talking pre-end of the Soviet Union, NATO was quite easy because you just had books which you knew exactly and the plans were made and you marched along certain tracks which were well planned and everyone agreed. But what, you and what, the blue forces, not the orange ones. Yeah, exactly. But what I'm saying now is that NATO is quite different in its who's going to come from the NATO members, what are they going to do, and who's going to actually run the thing. And, and the script isn't, isn't written. This is the problem. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's an important point to make, too, about Afghanistan. I mean, we've talked about as a NATO operation. This is a United States operation supported by a number of other allies. Many 43 of them countries altogether? Many of them European. And the NATO model is being used for command. And mm-hmm. um, this, uh, this is quite important, really. Pretty difficult to explain in three paragraphs. Absolutely. Even the Sunday are... Times make... Um, particularly the Sunday <laughs> Times, I'm afraid. <laughs> but uh, I, I think the, um, you know... It, it, it is a problem. You know, the script is still being written. We mm. saw with Georgia, Russia came in, it hit it hard. It, you, it's drawn that line. There is not a slightest chance of Georgia being invited to join NATO. There'll be fine noises made about it, but there's not the slightest chance of Georgia being invited to join NATO for a very long time. I know my contemporaries down at the forum will say, "Thank goodness for that." Listen, I want to talk about China. Um, President Obama in China this week. Uh, I'll tell you something: six hours of meetings, two big dinners. I mean, if you want to know about ordering number 43 and 57, this is, this is mega stuff. And during a 30-minute news conference at which President uh, Hugh Jantao did not allow questions, I think President Obama got the message, no. China getting tough, is it? Or China always has been tough. On the line, Jonathan Fenby, the China editor of Trusted Sources and the author of The Penguin History of Modern China. Um, Jonathan, did China outstage manage the White House, which seems almost inconceivable? Yes. Uh, Well, (laughs) outstage manage. Um, What China did was to basically set up the stage, uh, run the direction, run the lighting, run the the, the whole visit, and Obama went along with it. Mm. They got him more or less to say everything they wanted him to say, and they said nothing of what he wanted them to say. Uh, yes, by and large. I mean, he, uh, Obama, made he had a, a town, what was called a town hall meeting in Shanghai before he went to Beijing. Uh, that was meant to be something that American presidents always try to do when they go to China, which is to speak to the Chinese people, unmediated by uh, the Communist Party or the leadership. Uh, what in fact happened then was uh, very significant that the town hall meeting, which the White House had expected to be broadcast nationally 
was not broadcast nationally. It was broadcast by one local television station, uh, Phoenix Television, which is based in Hong Kong but very closely aligned with Beijing, began to cover the town hall meeting but stopped after 10 minutes, and the main Chinese news agency, Xinhua, put out coverage on its website to begin with, but then stopped that after a few minutes. And uh, the White House then said, ah, yes, but Chinese people could log into the White House website and get Mm. direct coverage there. Well, they could, except that it took an awfully long time to get through. It was incredibly slow uh, and very congested. So uh, the Great Firewall of China came down around the president. Yeah, I can imagine dial-up from Xinjiang. It's going to take some time. Well, I've done it from Beijing to, you know, even going to Hong Kong is is, is very expensive to begin with and then um, uh, very bad. But uh, What does this tell us about the sophistication of China? Or is this just old China? It's a mixture. It's it's using sophisticated modern technology uh, and security uh, apparatus to retain the kind of central control which uh, China Chinese leaderships have always exercised or sought to exercise uh, under the empire, under the First Republic, and now under the People's Republic, and to uh, circumscribe the uh, activities of foreigners uh, when they're in China, even if they happen to be president of the United States. Yeah, Jonathan Fembe, thank you very much indeed. Um, Michael, when you look at it from Michael Cotton, when you look at it from the sort of military sciences, and you start looking at not potential enemies, but just simply the sophistication as we're talking about there of what is effectively another superpower now, it is very impressive how they can outmanage the White House, isn't it? Well, we're talking about their presentation internally and, and the uh, the trip and everything had um, global coverage and it sent some quite important messages about the uh, change of view of the new administration in the United States vis-a-vis China, the need to engage, the need to uh, take um, China forward alongside and I suppose for the Chinese people, you see a, a young, cool president, albeit perhaps not terribly fierce, um, in, in their midst, which uh, would send some good messages. But your point about uh, uh, China for the future, I mean, this, this, this is uh, probably the, the biggest question for long-term projection and military capability for most, for most of the Western nations, ourselves, the Netherlands, who I was talking to today, everyone else, is where is it going? And the problem is managing the future and managing um, a a nation that will one day at least be an extremely big power, uh, whether it will be multipolar or multilateral, I suppose, is the choice. That's how the Dutch present it, anyhow. In other words, big enough. Big enough, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Big enough, Merlin Helicopters. They arrived in Afghanistan this week. Long time coming, you say, right. But there's more to it than the newspapers tend to bother with. This was pretty clear, as you would have heard yesterday on BFBS, when the deputy commander of the Joint Helicopter Command, uh, who is Air Commodore Simon Fowler, when he talked to BFBS's Steve Britton about it, what it's been like to work within the eye of what he called the media storm over recent months when the headlines have been not enough helicopters. 
Well, I think it's a sort of mixture of a very enjoyable job. I mean, to, to be doing something that is right at the forefront and trying to make a difference, you know, and I think we are making a difference, is very, very rewarding. I mean, there are frustrations with it as well. I think it's been difficult with, with all the news about shortage of helicopters and the like. Since 2006, we've known that we were going to need more helicopters, and, and we have, to use the, the Chief of the Defence Staff's words, we've been busting a gut to get more and you know the second we could move them from Iraq and across to Afghanistan we've done exactly that so the increase in helicopters and we've got over 60% more machines there now than we had in um, 2006 and we're delivering nearly 100% more flying hours and I think this is one of the critical things that gets missed that you can have as many helicopters as you like but you don't fly them very much and you don't make them efficient then you haven't got a particularly good service and the key actually is getting flying hours and the key to flying hours is getting crews and so the debate really is more about the numbers of crews than about helicopters to be honest. Mick Smith I know that you in the Sunday Times have sort of made this distinction but it's been a very difficult one for some of your colleagues in other newspapers to sort of say okay let's get away from the um let's get away from the headlines because helicopters is a sexy headline we all understand that especially when the chief of the general staff is being carted around in an american helicopter why is it why can't this that sort of story be told well i'm not sure that there is a difference between the two frankly because he's talking about helicopter hours then he's dividing it between helicopters and crews, and the crews are being important. But the bottom line is, if you've got 38 Chinook helicopters, you ought to have the crews to crew them. And someone hasn't planned ahead, basically. And we know, and it's certainly true also, that um, back in whenever it was, 2004 or 2005, I can't remember, when um, the Treasury went through the MOD's plans to buy a number of helicopters for both for all free services, they chopped the um, medium transport helicopters out of the budget for extra Chinooks or rather the heavy transport out of out of the budget. So um, you know it's not um, it's not surprising that that the media focuses on helicopters because whether you you whether you you're talking about the crews or the actual physical helicopters it doesn't really matter it's the number of helicopters that are in afghanistan and the number of helicopters that are in afghanistan match up to the number of crews they can provide the job hasn't been done properly now whether it's down to the money as um, it seems to be have been or whether it's down to the army saying not saying well we, we're going to need this many or whether it's down to the RAF not recruiting as many and frankly, my view is that it's probably a mixture of all three. But I mean, I remember, what, 2000, 2001, 2002, all you could hear from the um, RAF was, we don't have enough fast jet pilots. We don't have enough fast jet pilots. It's quite clear you know, that you don't need as many fast jet pilots as the RAF has to have flown the aircraft they were flying over Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, you certainly need more Chinook pilots than we've got. Yeah, would-be pilots, Julian, of course, want to be fast jet pilots and not uh, rotary? Well, that is a, an attitude which I have to say is is, is uh, fostered by the RAF. I mean, you'll never get to be chief of the air staff unless you've flown a pointy jet yeah. around the place. And the fact you've actually probably seen more combat flying helicopters and you've got just as much brains as a guy sitting who's a jet jockey. And on the back of, from the back of a, sh uh, a frigate as well. On the back of a frigate. Uh, doesn't seem to wash. Now, and I absolutely agree with what uh, Vic said. The problem is it's a long-term 
problem. You've got to start training pilots. It takes something like three or four years to get a pilot into the training system. I happen to know at the moment there are only two Chinooks in this country available for pilot training. So it's a hell of a balance. If you send all your helicopters that can fly to Afghanistan, you haven't got any here to train your pilots. You actually exacerbate the problem. Do you know how many helicopters it needs to put through the numbers of aircrew that want to go through or the RF want to go through? I don't know what the, what the, what the figure is, but it's certainly more than two. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is part of the problem, though, isn't it? We just sit there and it turns into a political uh, football that's going to be kicked around, Michael. As you said, um, the helicopter issue goes back to um, 2004, 2005 and training up enough crews... Um, There won't have been the time since then to do it. And one needs to bear in mind, of course, the decision to return to Afghanistan in um, in 2006. The military advice that was given to that decision, history is going to show, was not particularly good about the level of military activity that would be required um, in the subsequent years. The point about uh, helicopters um, and ownership by chiefs of services, this is quite a problem for the helicopters. You have the Joint Helicopter Command, which doesn't have this four-star ownership in the way that uh, the definitive features of each service do. Having said that, when it comes to the hard strategic choices to be made uh, in the defence review that will follow the green paperwork, the one thing you can say for sure, provided we still have any expeditionary capability, is you're going to need lots of helicopters, whichever way we go. And this is really one of the big capabilities. And one way of sorting out that dichotomy between the three services is to have the helicopters flown by the people who use them. Mm. That's the army and, and, and the navy. Mm. And, and give them and get take all the helicopters away from the Royal Air Force. Now there would be blood spilled in, yeah. the, uh, in the MOD if that goes through, Mick. But well, I, yeah, I, I was just going to say, I mean, there is blood. We, we've had purple for how long now? I mean, you know, purple has been eighty-three. Well, you know, there is still blood being spilled. The RAF has put through its its cuts. It wants to put through. It's including the aircraft. It will it will have at the end of the whole thing all of the JSF I don't know what the Navy think about that but the bottom line on helicopters Chris is um, that uh, we're almost getting to about 100 people killed this year in Afghanistan and about 80% of them have died in bombs nothing to do with helicopters Listen, do you mind if I move on because we're getting up to the half hour Um, it's just a thought I the the United States and the United Nations have criticised Israel's approval. This is a totally different story, but it's got, a, it's got a touch here. Approval of 900 extra housing units at a Jewish settlement in East Jerusalem on land captured in 1967. Now, President Obama was asked about this in his, in his visit to China, for goodness sake, and he said, no, 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 this is not right. I'm just wondering who supports Israel now. I mean, because everything they do, they're criticised because it's anti-Palestinian, anti-peace or whatever. And at the end of the day, they would say, yeah, but we've got to protect our country. I mean, how many, I mean, tell me five friends of Israel. Um, I think the closest you get, you have to go to Egypt or somewhere like that. I mean, I really do not think that America is clearly, whatever Obama said, America is still um, Israel's biggest friend in the West. Um, but uh, it's problematic. But, you know, with Netanyahu in there, what did you expect? And, and, and it's going to keep going the on. Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah. it's it's not it's not going to it's not going to change. They they can do if they can get away with it um, because of the the way in which the US elections work. And that's that's life. I mean, you know, they, that's it. Michael. 
Well, uh, there, there are friends you can find, and they're often um, strange partners. Um, there's Armenia. Over the China issue, however, what's interesting here is that whenever the Chinese, uh, which they would have been by um, President Obama, are challenged over issues of um, human rights in their own country, they will look to other countries, including the United States, to point out the inequalities and the human rights problems there. And, of course, they can then relate that directly to the United States' support for Israel. Now, and this is one reason why they would have made that point from China. Yeah, and this is the important point, isn't it? that we can say, oh, Middle East, Israel and Palestine, what's that got to do with us? It's got an enormous, Julian, to do with us because it's always said that if you can get Israel and Palestine right, then you start to settle the region and then you start to introduce a sense of stability which makes life better for everyone. Well, I'd have thought we'd learned a lesson why it matters to us in 1973 when we had a four-day week in this country. Uh, because of the uh, lack of the oil. The Yom Kippur War. Yeah, so it does affect us hugely. Right. It's gone, you know, it's 4.32. We're running late again. You're listening to SITREP from BFBS with me, Christopher Lee. If you've missed anything so far, just go to bfbs.com forward slash SITREP and listen again, or podcast. That's bfbs.com forward slash SITREP and listen again, or podcast. And now to SITREP Overheard. It's part of the programme when we think aloud about things that concern you but don't always come on your radar, to quote Sarah Palin. And uh, who doesn't quote a hockey mom once in their life, indeed? I love it. Uh, uh, Sarah Palin this week, how can she stay away? Everybody who's forgotten who Sarah Palin was, she was the the lady who nearly became the vice president of uh, Republican vice president. And she said yesterday, I heard her yesterday, she said, um, well, uh, in an, an Alaskan dog sleigh race, unless you're the front dog, it always looks the same. And I thought, that is one for the classic sort of folksy sort of stuff here. Well, anyway, with me here at the Soviet Roundtable, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson from the Intelligence and uh, from the Sunday Times, their defence correspondent Michael Smith, and from the Royal United Services Institute in Whitehall, the Director of Military Sciences, um, Michael Codner. Um, Something like Sarah Palin is very important to us, isn't it? It somehow says that when you get this, when you do in this country, you get this sort of thing. We certainly did when President Bush was there. Sort of slightly anti-American sort of feeling. And somehow, uh, Nick Smith, you've covered this sort of thing for years. Somebody like a Sarah Palin is important, isn't she? Well, I think she's important um, because she she shows us what America is really about. I mean... The East Coast and, and the West Coast sneer at her. Certainly Guardian readers over here would sneer at her. But actually, most Americans, middle Americans, would think that actually what she did, you know, what she's done with her life is great, that she's, um, she's you know, they love that hockey mum image. They particularly like the fact that she has this rather um, difficult family, because that's real people. She has. Yeah, um, certainly she has. Can I ask you this <laughs> Uh, I happen to know this, um, as one does, or this one does. Um, when she was getting contractions with her last child, her son, Sarah Palin went down to the river, this is true, went down to the river and started rowing furiously, trying to bring on the birth. And do you know why? Because she was getting these contractions on the 4th of July. And she wanted the son, an all-American boy, born on the 4th of July. In fact... Uh, she went into labour just after midnight 
and he was born on the 5th of July. Terribly sort of disappointed hockey mom. But it is very much an American story, and it's yeah. another side of America when we're thinking about how many more troops, McChrystal, yeah. etc., which the British public actually warmed to. Why I, is that? I, I, I personally don't have anything against the woman. I mean, she's a Republican, which puts her politically the other side of me. But, I mean, she seems to me to be a perfect um, person for Americans. Mm. Anyway, we've spent enough time on Sarah Payne. We shall return. <laughs> we shall return. Fast Eddie's mum thinks she's wonderful. Um, i tell you who I was wondering about. And anybody listening to uh, Richard Hutchinson's show today, earlier today, and um, um, got me thinking about Bob Ainsworth. It was a coincidence. I mean, he was in the programme. Now, I have carried out a totally unscientific poll of my own. 38 people, I don't know many more than 38 people, I mean, who does? Including five service people, and I tried them with a simple question. Who is Bob Ainsworth? Who is Bob Ainsworth? Not what is Bob Ainsworth? Not what does make Bob Ainsworth tick or anything like that? Who is Bob Ainsworth? Not one of them knew. Not one of them. No one even guessed who Bob Ainsworth is. Yet he's one of the most important cabinet ministers in Gordon Brown's government. <sighs> Name me five others, I said, and their departments. I'll tell you what I got. I won't tell you what I got. I'll tell you later what I got. Because Bob Ainsworth, as all sit rep listeners know, is the Defence Secretary. And here's Jamie Gordon, who would tell us a bit more than that. Robert William Ainsworth was born in Coventry in 1952. After attending his local comprehensive, he joined the workforce at the Jaguar plant in the city, and so began his political aspirations. He became a trade unionist, eventually becoming Sheet Metal Workers Union branch president. In 1984, Mr Ainsworth was elected to the Coventry County Council, becoming chair of the Finance Committee, and eight years later he began his parliamentary career. After the deselection of the sitting MP, John Hughes, Ainsworth won the Coventry North East seat with a majority of over 11,500. By 2001, he was promoted to Parliamentary Under Secretary of State at the former Department for Environment, Transport and the Regions. Following a spell in the Home Office, he was appointed Deputy Chief Whip, before joining the MOD, eventually becoming Minister for the Armed Forces in 2007 and a member of the Privy Council along the way. Working to the then Secretary of State Des Brown, Mr Ainsworth began touring the British forces, whose main attention at the time was focused on the situation in Iraq. What we've got to make sure is that the Iraqis are capable of doing the job as we move ourselves. But it's got to be conditions-based. It can't be some artificial timetable. Despite having little prior experience with the military, he continued to offer the government line on things like forces welfare, Kosovo, the Nimrod inquiry and the military covenant. I would like to see us do the absolute maximum, and that means spending the money that we have in the most effective way on the priorities that are important to our armed forces, and that's what we're trying to do. John Hutton resigned unexpectedly as Secretary of State for Defence earlier this year, and in the ensuing reshuffle, and despite his previous two years as Armed Forces Minister, there was still a degree of shock when Bob Ainsworth assumed control of the MOD. His tenure began in June of this year, and by July he was having to explain the purpose of Operation Panther's Claw, which led to the British forces experiencing mass casualties. This is hard fighting, and as we've seen, there's great sacrifice involved. But we are making progress. In the face of the casualties that we're seeing, it's understandable when people ask, is this too difficult? But let me tell you, 
That's not the message that I got in Afghanistan when I visited last week. Today, much of the British public perceive him as the man in charge, and it's Mr Ainsworth who has to keep telling the country why British men and women continue to die in Afghanistan. Jamie Gordon, thank you very much. That on Robert William Ainsworth. Now, by the way, Mick Smith, uh, he was saying, uh, Jamie Gordon was saying, that um, Bob Ainsworth took over from... uh, Forgotten who took it to it? John Hutton. John Hutton. Why did John... Oh, John Hutton was only there five minutes and he wanted the job. What happened? Um, I think he found out what was involved. He found... He, he instigated the Grey report and got feedback immediately from Grey on the mess inside the procurement. Um, he clearly realised he, he was already getting reports from Haddon Cave on the mess inside Earwormness. I mean three of us here sat here were all in the forces in the 70s and 80s I cannot believe, I can't remember a, a, an aircraft that I flew in that wasn't delayed while some widget was replaced for, for no real consequence um, you, you get the feeling nowadays that um, it doesn't matter what the crew on the ground are doing it's the, um, the thing the whole thing is a complete mess frankly mm. um Michael, do you, I mean, at the IUSI, you must have a lot to do with uh, the Defence Secretary, uh, Bob Ainsworth. I mean, how do you see him there? Well, we have a, a great deal to do, um, and um, we're hoping he'll be speaking in the Institute shortly. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to mess things up. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but um, just looking at the John Hutton situation, you can see that this is not the sort of job um, in the particular situation, whether it's problems with acquisition, whether it's current operations and the the lack of um, a clear purpose as far as the public is concerned. It's not the sort of job that any uh, senior politician who is trying to build a big name for his future would want to take. Mm. And, um, uh, and uh, um, he has faced um, a huge challenge in sort of seeing through his job as Secretary of State for Defence until the election, which is basically what he's doing. All one can say is, though, that as far as Afghanistan is concerned, if this is a war, and as far as the United Kingdom is concerned, it is a war, it may not be a war as far as German politicians are concerned, etc., then wars are led by prime ministers, and and to some extent a Secretary of State may well be a little bit um, in the shadow of a prime minister, and what you need is a prime minister who's going to show the right sort of leadership. The prong, problem with long wars is that prime ministers have an awful lot of other things to do, yes. um, particularly economic crisis, and you don't get that sort of focus in the public perception that uh, you're doing a Churchill until this is seen through. The odd speech, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, listen, uh, I think, listening to that on the line, the defence editor of the Times newspaper, Michael Evans. Um, Michael, you've been... Well, you've been following defence secretaries for must be more than a quarter of a century, haven't you? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't I want to so, put it yeah. that way. Um, I don't mean you were following them, but you've been watching them. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, not this sort of program. Um, tell me, um, Bob Ainsworth, his presence when he walks into a room. Uh, does he give the impression of being in command? Um, I don't think so. Not particularly. I mean, I think it's very difficult to 
I don't think there are many individuals, to be quite honest, politicians or non-politicians, who enter a room and there's, and there's instant sort of, oh my goodness, who looked, who looked, and come into the room, unless it's showbiz or something. Uh, but in, certainly in all the defence secretaries that I've met, I don't think Bob Ainsworth would stand out as someone who, you know, gives sort of instant attention uh, or, or demands instant attention when he walks in. That, that's because he's a different sort of personality. He's a very nice and likeable bloke, and, and I'm sure he's completely dedicated to his job, but he's not the sort of bloke who would make the lights come on, I, I guess. Uh, but that's not, a, you know, that's not supposed to be a criticism. It's just, it's just the way life is. But, I mean, if you look back over the years, the people who make people stand up, who made people stand up, as it were, when they were defence secretaries would include, obviously, someone like Michael Heseltine, but he had advantages of flowing hair and very tall. Um, uh, George Robertson was commanded huge respect when he was defence secretary. John Reid, if he'd stayed around long enough, would have done, but he wasn't around long enough. John Hutton, also very likeable, very very competent, very intelligent man, also wasn't around long enough. So the trouble with this defence secretary appointment is that people haven't stayed long enough to make a huge impact. Yeah, when when also you um, you see him alongside, for example, the um, chiefs of staff, um, it's always very difficult, isn't it, for a civilian to give that sort of sense of ruthless military efficiency as well. Well, it is, and I think it takes a little bit of um, a certain talent, shall we say, to. Uh, mingle well with the military, certainly the higher echelons of the military, sort of straight away. So coming coming in from being, let's say, works and pensions uh, or whatever, uh, minister to becoming uh, defence secretary, um, pretty tricky unless you have that particular instinct and talent and also, I have to say, uh, enjoyment of the military. And, and there aren't many people, for obvious reasons, because they've never been in the military themselves, there aren't that many who come into the job and probably think, oh, this is the job I really want. John Hutton was one, by the way, who really looked forward to that job, and John Reid was another. Um, but, um, no, I think it is difficult to stand alongside service chiefs who've been around for, you know, 20, 30 years uh, and expect to command their instant attention. Yeah, um, it, it, that is very good, the point you make about not having uh, service backgrounds as well. I mean, there are a lot of people in the House of Commons, in fact, who do now have service backgrounds. And they've, they've either been ex-regulars or, or TA. But I think we have to go back quite a way, don't we? Um, I was thinking of Lord Carrington, um, Dennis Healy. Yeah, no, we're going back a long way. I mean, that's, that's quite right. Um, but does it does it make a huge difference if you've had a some sort of military background? Well, I guess I guess the difference it makes is that the service chiefs that you are dealing with will think, "Aha! Well, I'm dealing with a guy who's uh, you know, got an MC." Cross. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, and um, I'm going to jolly well listen because this guy uh, has been around a bit. Uh, and I, I would I would imagine that service chiefs looking at their new defence secretary across the oak oak uh, table uh, desk in, in the office and will say, uh, well, this guy um, hasn't done very much. Um, let's see what he's made of. So I think that there is a bit of that. OK, Michael Evans, thank you very much indeed. Michael um, Codney, shaking your head. Well, uh, there's a lot of difference, I think, between a um, uh, a Secretary of State for Defence who's fought in the Second World War and Secretary of Defence who happened to be in the military during the Cold War from the perception of the, uh, of, of the soldier of today. Um, and um, great to Julian who fought a war himself. But um, 
Another point I would make is that uh, Secretary of State and Ministers for the Armed Forces, you probably want to have different characters. If you've got the statesman and the Secretary of State, and they have been rare in the past, as we've talked about, and the Minister for the Armed Forces, you may want someone who is going to be more chatty, relate more directly to the soldiers, or something quite different, but someone who balances the Secretary of State. What you don't probably expect is the Secretary of State to leave early and the Minister for Armed Forces to be kicked up as it were yeah. because he may well not be the person that you would um, yeah. have in business Julian how do you see this as a military man well I think one of the problems is, is that the, the, the Secretary of State for Defence hadn't lasted long over the last 12 okay. years and, and, and also in the perception I think of the military and certainly the people I talk to the post has been downgraded uh, not actually physically but has been looked at as less important by, by the prime by the two successive prime ministers and after all, at one stage, uh, the Secretary of State for Defence was also Secretary of State for Scotland, which doesn't which actually, wrong. Which doesn't actually you know, make people feel too confident that, that he's rated very highly. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I always hark back because I actually worked for them, for Healy and Carrington, uh, and they were people with stature. They were people who fought in the same war as the chiefs. They were captains, and the chiefs were then captains and majors in the same war, so they, they could relate to each other. Whether that helped or not, I think it did. Mm. Uh, but I think the real nub of it is that the government at the moment are trying to run this war, and it is a war, without recognising it is one. And I think that uh, the, the Prime Minister should have a war cabinet in which the Secretary of State of Defence is a leading person in, in that war cabinet. It's, 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 it's very difficult to, to imagine, though, Michael Connor, that um, a Defence Secretary doesn't pick up stuff very, very, very quickly on the realities of being a wartime... Defence Secretary. Well, there are um, there are probably different characters to be great war. Well, you don't have to be great; you just have mm. to be good at it, don't you? Yes, I mean there is the issue of a competition over leadership between the chief of the general staff, the chief of the defence staff, and the prime minister, and where the secretary of state, with his um, intermediary role, fits in with all of this um, this mixture and, and and picking the right type of personality and also being the right sort of person as you perceive yourself I think is, yes. is quite a challenge Can I just give you a, th a thought, I mean I, it sounds as if we're slagging off Bob Lainsworth here and I'm not sure we are, are we? No, no, he, not. I, Mike got him right, he's a very nice guy, he just mm. got given a hospital pass that's, that's <laughs> the bottom line yeah, well, Absolutely Yes. Yes. Um, well let me tell you something I did this, it's very stupid actually, I, an unofficial poll um, and uh, I just said to people, name cabinet ministers. And only three cabinet ministers uh, were named. And then the fourth as an afterthought and one who wasn't even a cabinet minister. And let me tell you, the three cabinet ministers that everybody got immediately and said, oh, um, Mr. Mandelson, I'm not sure he likes that, but Mr. Mandelson, David Miliband. That's an interesting one. And then the one that really interested me was the MP for Exeter, Ben Bradshaw. People knew, without any prompting, that Ben Bradshaw was a name that they should know. Um, the afterthought was the Chancellor. I actually said, well, who's the Chancellor of the Exchequer? Because he's the guy that sort of taxes you. Um, out of, OK, again, it wasn't very many, but out of sort of 48 people that I asked, not one person knew who it was. They could all picture him. And then one person actually said, isn't that David Blunkett? 
Um, now, does this tell us anything that we didn't know? But it, it's, it's, it's pretty bad that, that out of a very short sample like that, only three, uh, Mick, you've got this. You're, you're using these names all the time in your newspaper. Yeah, but I, I think we do, and we do use these names all the time. And I don't think life has changed, um, and it probably hasn't, hasn't changed since um, the war. I No doubt during the war, I'm sure, well, everyone did know, of course, who Mr. Churchill was, as everyone knows who Mr. Brown is. But um, I think, you know, people... Can you remember who the war people time don't know who ministers are, really. What time war minister was? Sorry? Can you remember who the Second World War minister well, it was? was actually Churchill. 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 Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the he point that you were making. I wasn't there at the time. <laughs> yeah. no. But it is, a, it is the point, isn't it? It's that uh, there are not that many stars. Mm. And maybe, Julian, if you're in the military, you're not looking for stars. I mean, the Defence Secretary during the Falklands was John Knott. Not a star. Not a star. Not mm. a star. Mm. And in fact... Uh, had really didn't really want the job and had uh, brought out his 81 defence review, which nobody thought was very good, etc. But the defence review, although it was modified since the Falklands War, remained the review in place till the end of the Cold War, so it lasted another nine years, and a lot of people aren't aware of that. Yeah, so he wasn't. He may have not have been sort of that popular because he was trying to change the, the way, especially the Navy looked, presumably. Yes, it was the Navy yeah. that was on the back foot from the review. Yeah, I think and the Navy did a bit of a recovery, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes, but, yes. Um, but the, the, the basic um, concepts and principles uh, that res- um, review pre- and tenets of review presented remained there until the end of the Cold War. But coming back to this image of the, uh, uh, and, and the type of person, I mean, if we go back to Dennis Healy, they were giants. Uh, they became giants, but they were giants at the time, were they political well, giants? I, I've got a question for Mick, actually. I wonder if the lack of of knowledge about who these guys are is is because of the uh, the decline of the print media. In, in I mean, in the old days, you looked at the Daily Mirror; they'd perhaps be a, a a cartoon of a minister or somebody like. There'd be lots of photographs of leading personalities, probably every day in 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 the red tops, wouldn't there? And in certainly articles about leading characters in the more serious newspapers. I mean, is it that? I don't know. No, I I honestly don't think it's changed. I honestly think that ordinary people don't really care too much about politics and um, so they don't know who um, such and such a minister is. Um, You're chancing your arm, I think, here in a BBC studio talking about Ben Bradshaw being the most most um, well-known minister, of course. But... um, that, that's why, because he's, he's, been in the news. His cultural he's been in the news, his mm. name's been hammered. And Ainsworth... He's also Pro- an ex-BBC Pro- correspondent. Ben Bradshaw, of yeah. course, yes. Mm. Yeah. A turncoat, according to Mr Thompson, actually. Yes, mm. yeah. And the ones you mentioned, you could say they're known because they're slightly bizarre in one way or another. <laughs> Well, I can the, see the you're talking about Mr Mandelson. <laughs> Mr Mandelson and uh, um, uh, the Foreign Secretary, you know... It, just looks unusual. In, in, I'm not criticising him at all. Yes, you are. What should be in short trousers? Listen, there is. Uh, I mean, and just, the, just and, final point. And tell, me, early tell me, tell me. I'm sure you all know. Tell me the name of the defence secretary that ever got to number ten. Well, actually, technically, none of them. But a defence minister. No, a defence secretary did. Well, a defence minister because Macmillan, who was defence minister. He was defence minister, not defence secretary. But he was only in the job for a little time and then became chancellor. Is that right? And then went on. But he's not. It's a job for people who didn't get much further. 
Mm. Is it? I mean, even Dennis Healy, who would have liked to have been Prime Minister, mm. didn't give it. Come on, listen, I want to uh, just finish on finally um, people who want to get much further and uh, who is well recognised. This evening, the European Union is expected to announce who gets the job as President of the European Union Council. Now, it's supposed to be a long meeting, what is called a three shirt meeting. Um, I'm never quite. What, why are they called three shirt meetings? Because they go on for a long yeah, time, and you've got yeah, to change yeah, your shirt. Yeah. Oh, crikey! Uh, what's wrong with one shirt? At one point, the smart money was on Tony Blair, or in the UK anyway. Now it seems there's no smart money, and the short list is is quite different. It even includes the former Latvian president. Name me the former Latvian president, and it's Varovica Freiberger. Um, <laughs> Thank now, God you did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, 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 well, the, um, Herman van uh, Rompuy, the, the Belgian Prime Minister, is the front-runner, apparently. But is this all a, all a con? Uh, is it really Tony Blair who's going to be the President of the European Council? And all these other people are being put up to say that uh, you, Tony Blair, have got no chance. And then the other people will come round and say, well... Yes, he has, and we'll vote for him anyway. Does it actually matter, Mick? Who is I, I, th- I think the, the point that, that people are making is that they've got to split it out between the small countries and the big countries, and the big job is 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 the guy who's going to be whatever their equivalent of foreign secretary is, because he's the guy who's going to be talking to people like Clinton and Obama um, on a regular basis. And um, and so the a little guy will get... The fairly inconsequential job. Yeah, was it Henry Kissinger, Michael, who who said, uh, "I got a problem every time I want to ring Europe. Who do I ring?" And that's the whole point of having, a, after all these years, of actually having a, somebody who, what is the phrase, can stop the traffic in Beijing and Washington. And that's why a lot of people wanted to go to Tony Blair. He's the only one, I suspect, that the whole of Europe would recognise. I mean, tell me the name. Anybody want to tell me the name? The Dutch Prime Minister, Jan-Peter Bankenende. I mean, he is a front-runner. Is it? He's got a good chance because he's not Tony Blair. I mean, that seems to be where we've got to, isn't it, with this nonsense? Well, well um, there is the issue of what we want the president to do. And if we want uh, a strong president and a strong European Union, then that's one thing. But if we want a safe pair of hands, that's another. And from a British point of view, that's uh, quite a decision to be made. I mean, the other issue is whether you want someone to bed it in and then some really big name to take the job and... But if you get a big leader's going to do that, yeah. or whether the wrong person bedding it in will mean that yeah. it will be a weak post. But forever. you see, the idea is that if Tony Blair gets the gig, mm. Tony Blair gets the gig. What happens? He says, "I'm not going to do that unless it's a really big job." Mm. So eventually, or immediately, he's established it as a big job. Yep. So whoever exactly. comes along behind him is mm. important. Now, is it important? I mean, I was thinking this week, uh, the Russians and the EU were meeting to discuss future energy energy supplies. Now, energy security, uh, uh, Michael, as your RUSI keep telling us, is one of the big issues, isn't it, for the uh, for the next two, three, four decades? Well, what I would say is it's important that the council has a much stronger voice um, alongside the commission uh, in all of these issues, and that would certainly suit the the broad British view, I think, over the European Union that the council should be stronger um, in uh, all of these uh, issues, particularly the ones that relate directly to security in the wider sense, such as uh, energy, which typically would have been very much a commission matter. And this guy is the one that leads the council, which is the council of nations, not the Mm. appointed 
set of officials and bureaucrats which that's, constitute the commission. That's right, and that's perhaps why the certain political leaders in Europe don't want a big hitter. They're saying, you know, we don't want to be outclassed. But, um, Julian, here's a point, though. There's easy to be Little Britain about this or Little England about this, isn't there? Because the rest of continental Europe has had hundreds of years of history of being crisscrossed by wars and crises, where we've been more or less protected. I know we have the Blitz, but we've been protected in this country. So we actually sort of fear somebody taking charge in Europe far more than perhaps people in Europe do. Yes, I'd certainly fear um, Tony Blair taking charge. That's a personal <laughs> view. Um, <laughs> Yes, I think we do, and I think uh, yes, we're, we're, we we'd rather run things ourselves. Uh, I, I I totally go along with that, that point of view, actually. So we all really, well, if we want to promote somebody who's going to be a member of UKIP or something to be president. Now, come on, uh, pick somebody. Uh, Nick Smith, tell me somebody from history, uh, from Disney, from anywhere that you reckon would make a great president of Europe. Well, I, I, you, you put two possible choices up. Napoleon and Charles IV is definitely Charles IV. I mean, pulling all those countries together after a long disaster and in the middle of a long war as well, a hundred yeah. years war. Yeah, so um, Charles IV, I think. Or even Charles VI, that would be quite a good one. Um, Michael Cotton, you're scratching your head. <laughs> Quick, who would you have? I, I, I have to say that I wouldn't reject Tony Blair. I think that we need to make something of this post, and he would certainly have have the even if in this country there were reservations, he'd have the the world. Um, Julian, anyone but Blair? Anyone but Blair. Here we go. That's it for this week. My thanks to Michael Codden, uh, Michael Smith, and anyone but Blair, Julian Thompson. Uh, join us this uh, this time next week. From me, Christopher Lee. Goodbye. <laughs>